on this episode of Apartment 309 Podcast. On a cold afternoon in December of 2010, Officer Malia and his partner, a German Shepherd named Blue, make the grisly discovery of the body of a 24-year-old woman named Shannon Gilbert, an escort that had been missing since earlier that year. In the days ahead, the discovery would lead to four more bodies being found, and the beginning of a years-long twisted journey through corruption, sexual predation, and a hunt for the Long Island serial killer. Welcome to Apartment 309 Podcast, the one-sided storytelling podcast where I dive into true crime or the paranormal and tell it to my captive audience boyfriend while he reacts occasionally, basically just recording part of our normal day. I'm Lauren. And I'm Eric. And we live... In apartment 309. All right. All right. We're back. We always say that. Part two. Part two. <laughs> yep, we got our second two-parter. That's right. Buckle in. And it's Friday. It's Friday. It's Friday. And it's rainy. You remember that Rebecca Black song? No. It's Friday. Oh, We're going to get Friday down song. on Friday. That's horrible. It was, I feel like my version was probably better than the original, but I don't want to slander anybody. The one you were just singing? Yeah. Yeah, way better. Yeah, so much better. Mm Mm-hmm. So what do you got for us today? I got true crime. You got anything for us today? Yeah, so... um... We have aliens. We have confirmed alien bodies. Aliens confirmed. Who confirmed it? Um, a couple of... Uh, ...bodies that they supposedly found in Peru. Okay. Yep. And, uh, I don't know about these things. Reuters reports that Mexican lawmakers heard testimony that we are not alone in the universe and saw the alleged remains of non-human beings in an extraordinary hearing marking the Latin American country's first congressional event on UFOs. And uh, they are little, and they got them sitting in like these velvet boxes with like okay. cloth around them, like they're the Holy Grail or something. And uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of people are not buying it. I don't know how I feel about that. They um, do have that whole desert area up. Um, can't. What is that desert area called between Texas and I think Chihuahua? I don't know. Where there's like a lot of UFO sightings or like time loss experiences. Right. But they found these in Peru. Yeah. In oh, 2017. But Mexico is saying that they have them? Yes. A couple of uh, you paranormal researchers brought them in. Huh. They found them in 2017. Yeah, uh, near the ancient Nazca lines in Peru. Huh. Said that they were about a thousand years old, analyzed through a carbon dating process by Mexico's National Autonomous University. Similar okay. such finds in the past have turned out to be the remains of mummified children. Oh, no. But these don't look like children. These look like some lady made them in her basement. Oh, no. With clay. Yeah. Out of like paper mache. Yeah. 
But oh, I no. guess we'll see. You know, there's going to be tests on them. They tested the dates. They said that they were around 1,000 years old, but who knows? These things just do not look legit, and the internet agrees. I don't believe in carbon dating anyway. Hmm. Interesting. So that's that's what's new. That's what people are talking about now. It's It's such a, you know, there's... There's silly things on the internet all the time where people are like, oh, is it real? Is it not real? And there's a debate about a lot of silly cultural stuff. Or, But this is like presented to the Mexican Congress, huh. which, you know, gives it a weird angle, a different angle. Um, but it's so far doesn't have the uh, the official feeling that I think they were trying to give off here. It's still got that... Uh that made it from Michael's craft clearance section feel yeah, to it. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> oh, little no. creepy, elongated skulls, face on the front. You know, kind of classic. Emoji aliens. Spanish-speaking Peruvian aliens. <laughs> oh, boy. Interesting. Did they give any more backstory about exactly where they found them or what condition they found them in? Um, Not in this story. Um, I don't know a lot about it. Are, I mean, they're a thousand years old, supposedly. Are they in one piece? or? Yeah, they're inviting people to come and test. Um, yeah, it's just kind of out in the air right now. We'll huh. see what comes of it. Well, let me know how that goes. You keep an eye on that. I hadn't even heard of that yet. But, I, I mean, it doesn't have the gravitas that you would think it would if it, people considered it potentially real. Most people are looking at this like, yeah, right. Yeah, but I mean, we've kind of <clears throat> we've kind of collectively lost the luster of new and exciting events being announced. Right. Like even if there's some legitimacy behind it, we just don't care anymore. And I'm saying we just like the general feeling of governments announcing news or things being presented, people have lost interest. Yeah. A hundred percent. We've got the UFO or the UAVs being reported. Yeah. Um, we've had a plague. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, know. think about how many years they spent trying to convince everyone if you believed in aliens, you were a loony. Yeah. And, and now, now they're, they're like, no, but really aliens are like... real. And it's like, well, but now we're four generations deep into people going to the crazy bin for that kind of talk. And the like nobody... You can't just like flip a switch and be like, whoa, they're yeah. real. In my experience, most people are like, but what? Like you don't believe, you know, or it feels like the uncool position now is to be like, you're not buying it. Yeah. Mo I think most people would say, oh, yeah, definitely. I don't know if most people would say about this. It's pretty faulty looking, but, you know. You let us know what you think about the Peruvian aliens. The little dusty Peruvian aliens. The little dusty aliens. They are <laughs> dusty. And they put the they put the dust in there within the velvet with the box. Like they put dirt in there. Like why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. If you're put like you don't put dirt in someone's coffin. You don't <laughs> you don't put dirt in the presentation velvet. It's when you're, it's for uh, being dramatic. It is. It's for dramatic effect. <laughs> it, it didn't work on Eric, though. 
Well, not on me. They're not pulling a fast one on me. You'll have to send me some of those pictures. I'll put them up on our Instagram um, so everybody can see them. Yeah, so you guys can see them and you can let us know what you think. Yeah, we'll go ahead and I'll post a video or something about it and maybe do a poll about it or something. I'd love to hear how many people yeah, we should do think a poll. that they're real because they could be. Yeah, and how many sh- people think they're not. We should definitely do a poll. I'm very interested to see what people think. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, excellent. Well, uh, I don't have anything to add to that. On to part two. On to part two. All right. So where <laughs> are we at now? Okay. So we're back into true crime and I want to precursor this episode as I did with part one that, um, everything is alleged at this point. There is an open case. There is court hearings being scheduled still Everything is alleged. Alleged. <laughs> alleged. Alleged. All right. So we are going back up the coast of New York. Uh, we're going to crawl back into that rabbit hole and we're going to actually get into the corrupt DA, the conspiratorial sheriff, uh, violence, murder, and the actual deaths of the several young sex workers and a few of the unknowns. Um, we've got facts, we've got speculation. Again, all of it is ongoing, all of it is alleged, and so is the alleged Long Island serial killer. Boom, boom. You know, um, Olivia, I think that was the longest played character on TV from SVU. Okay. Um, Olivia something. I think it's going on like 25 or 26 years. Interesting. I know. Okay, but anyway, back to it. Uh, So last episode, we left you with the long, long list of alleged victims of the Long Island serial killer. Yes. Ooh, I had a burp. Sorry. Um, Bodies that had gone missing and then uh, been left in that area between 1996 and 2010. There were families that were just beginning their grieving process having gone from just a missing daughter to finding out that she had been murdered and left on the side of a lonely highway stretch off the coast of New York. We weren't sure who was involved in the investigation outside of some canine unit officers searching in their own time, and it was an absolute mess, just a hot mess. If you don't know what hot mess I'm talking about, or you're interested in hearing about the girls and their backstories and a little bit more on the timeline, please go listen to part one. It'll fill you in on all of that. And then come back over for part two and we'll fill you in on the rest. So I'm going to walk us back to the first day that the Gilgo Four were discovered. It's December 10th off the New England coast. Long Island is actually a very long peninsula trailing off the southeast tip of New York. Um, It's cold in the off-season. It's not California beaches up there. It is definitely the northeast. What is that area? New England. I literally just said that and I already forgot. Officer John Malia had been out searching in the marshes and the brush off on the shoreline of Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach. He'd been searching for months looking for the missing Shannon Gilbert. That's when his canine officer alerts him to the presence of a body. Blue, the trained cadaver dog, had not hit on any points of interest up until that point. Officer Malia goes over to investigate what Blue had stopped at, 
and finds the decomposing body of a female wrapped in burlap and only a few feet from the highway. Somewhat confused about the state of the body and the burlap that it was wrapped in, he called it in. He pulled tech teams. He pulled backup. He had everybody out there to his location. Just within a few hours, they found another body less than 500 feet away from the one that he had originally found in similar burlap dressing left in a similar state. Um, Then they found another and then another. Four girls in total that would soon be identified as the missing Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Lynn Costello. Uh, The search had uncovered the dumping grounds of an active serial killer in the Long Island area. So as the search gets underway, the FBI offers up their help. They offer manpower, so boots on the ground to get more headway in the search of the area. Um, And then they also offer their special equipment and the use of their labs to help with recovery and preservation and investigation into evidence. So they're going to collect it. They're going to help analyze it. They're going to give that information back to the local PD. However, they did not actually officially join the investigation at the time. I'm not sure why. Um, I think it was because it was in one police department's area, so it didn't go over the border. um, And they had not been officially invited to be part of it. And there are some guidelines between state and federal and when federal can step in. So they just were like, hey, you can use this. And they were like, sweet, thanks. <laughs> yeah, some places can be pretty greedy with their murder cases, you know. I feel like, like that's hindered so many. It's it's all ego. It's very egocentric. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, they, they want the glitz and the glam and the glory because that's how you climb up the ranks. I don't I don't work for the police. I just know what I see and I judge people for judging people. So here we are. Oh yeah. Anyway, so the FBI is not involved. <laughs> they are, but they aren't. Um in the spring of two thousand eleven. So those remains are discovered in December of twenty ten. Now we're in the spring of twenty eleven. Six more sets of remains were uncovered in the area. And these ones did go into a different county. So I don't know, again, why the FBI didn't quite get involved, but we'll get into this here. Some of the remains were left out to the elements on these ones. Uh, One was found in a bag, and one was just the skull left over. Uh, This was when they also found the unidentified toddler and the mother of the toddler. Although they have not been officially tied to the Long Island serial killer, it is widely thought that they could be related possibly some earlier alleged victims when he was still kind of getting a feel for who he was going after and how he was doing it. It was also around this time that Shannon Gilbert's body was finally recovered from the marshes. She was found near the gated community that she had disappeared from several months earlier. And I think possibly the fact that they weren't sure if it was the same person killing all these people is why it didn't necessarily cross over into a different county's territory. They they felt they were separate incidences. But right. I don't know. I don't know. The autopsy comes back for Shannon. And it was determined that her death was either an accidental drowning in the marshes or she had passed due to exposure to the elements. Now, Shannon's mother, Mary, hired an attorney to fight back on this. 
the whole family felt that her death was not an accident. They paid for a private autopsy, and that came back with findings not specified in the initial paperwork. Her hyoid bone had been broken, and it's this little floating bone. It's the only bone in your body that's not connected in with any ligaments or muscle to another bone in your body. And when that is broken, the only way for it to get broken is extreme force on the throat. Ooh. Typically strangulation, which would line up with a Gilgo 4. Right. So you can't fake a, a broken hyoid in, in an autopsy. Can't it was that. just left out of the first one. Hmm. Hmm? Suspect. Suspect. So this is starting to line up more and more like a Gilgo 4 situation. Gilgo 5. Am I right? The Gilbert attorney, his name's John Ray, he fought for the family's right to an investigation into the incident, stating that this was a homicide, not a speculated drug-induced haze, as the police were so quick to call it before. And honestly, when you find that many bodies that fit a certain type, then you find another one that fits that type, why wouldn't you investigate it as a potential part of a series? Looks like we got a pattern for him in here. Yeah. I mean, if you look at all of the, uh, if you look at the incident that occurred when she disappeared, she got called to a client's house. She went to the client's house. She happened to have a bodyguard with her. And then she gets out the, the front door and starts banging on doors of neighbors before she disappears. There's nothing like that for the other girls, which would in imply that maybe there would be a break in the pattern you know, due to time and exposure to other people in the area. So I feel like they probably could have taken a little bit more time to look for other evidence that might have shown that these were related, but they didn't. Hmm. Anyway, it, it just didn't make sense to me. Uh, it seemed like they were just kind of sitting there with their thumb up their ass and they were like, no, oh, you know, another call girl out here. She probably drowned. Definitely drugs. Drugs were definitely involved. Like... <laughs> You could still collect some evidence. Somebody still died. Yeah, at least, you know, check it out. Take some pictures or something. Right. Like, it's not the whole reason you found these other bodies is because you were looking for her and then you found her body. And you're like, oh, we got a serial killer. And it's like handed to you on a friggin' silver platter. And you're like, definitely not that one, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> they all died of hypothermia crazy i know with you know they definitely wrapped themselves in that burlap for sure so the police go they do a search of the area where they found uh shannon and they end up finding her belongings scattered in the marshes behind one man's home and he lives in that gated community his name is dr peter hackett and guess who made a weird ass phone call to mary gilbert Two days after Shannon first disappeared. This guy. This guy. He calls Mary saying he runs a home for wayward girls and that Shannon had tried to get into his house. And that's all he said. I don't know. They didn't publish what else was in that phone call, but it was implied that it was a pretty short phone call and it was very off-putting and weird. So he says this to her on the phone, and then he says the same thing in two different police interviews. But then when Mary goes out there with some news crews to be like, no, the, really, this guy said this stuff and tries to call him out, he's like, 
I don't know what you're talking about, claiming that he never saw Shannon and he'd never met her before. He never talked to her. He never met her. He never even saw her. Suspect. So who the hell is this guy? Purely speculation, but was there possibly more than one person in the area that night that she disappeared that might have been capable of murder? So keep this in mind that maybe her client wasn't the only one in his home with her on the evening that she disappeared. And also, we never discussed, where'd her bodyguard go? He was waiting in the car out front. Right, so there's a bodyguard that was waiting, and then he tried to chase her down. So when Shannon ran from her client's home into the night, the neighbors whose doors she begged for help on explained what they saw happen to Shannon's sisters, because Shannon's sisters were going door to door, asking if anybody had seen anything and if they had any information because the police had allegedly not been interested in questioning more about what had happened that night. They barely talked to the neighbors. Of course. Yeah, so Shannon's sisters get back up there, and they start talking to the neighbors. And one neighbor, Gus Coletti, advised that he had opened his door at just past 5 in the morning. So Shannon got to this guy's house around 2 o'clock in the morning. Three hours later, she's now running around the neighborhood. She goes and bangs on Gus Coletti's front door. He sees Shannon standing on his doorstep, staring straight ahead in what he called a daze. She just kept repeating, help me, help me, help me. She's still on the phone and being recorded on that 911 call on her phone. He asks her, how can I help? Uh, You know, is there anything I can do? She just stared straight ahead. Like she wasn't seeing things. She wasn't comprehending things and repeating herself over and over. And he felt like maybe there was some kind of an intoxication involved where she wasn't really in the grips of reality. He reaches over, grabs his own phone, calls 911 himself. He told Shannon to sit in a chair just inside his front door while they wait for police to arrive. When he said this to her, she takes off again, runs off his porch, runs across the yard, apparently like running for her life, just crazed. He watches as her driver pulls up in his SUV. He described the driver, described the SUV, everything matched. This guy, so remember his name was Michael. Michael chases Shannon across the neighbor's yard and chases her like into the woods and then into the next neighbor's yard where Shannon again bangs on this next neighbor's door who then... That woman also calls 911 to report what's going on. As far as we know, that woman did not invite her in into her home for safety. And again, Shannon ran at this point and disappeared. As far as we know, Michael was still following her. We don't know at what point he gave up the chase. Michael claims that he lost her in the marshes, went back to his vehicle, and left, assuming that she would just show up at some point. By the time the police arrived, Michael had already left the neighborhood and Shannon was gone. She disappeared. So let's meet the men who actually ran the investigation. We have Chief of Detectives Dominic Verone. He had been in charge of the case since the girls were first uncovered. He'd been working with everybody, knew everybody, knew this case like the back of his hand. We have Officer James Burke known to the locals for more than just his time on the force. And we have DA Thomas Spoda, 
friend of Burke, and an elected official. So Chief Verone knows this case like the back of his hand, wants to find the murderer, wants to figure out what's going on, gets a phone call in the middle of the investigation at his desk telling him that he is either to resign immediately or he'll be demoted to captain and still taken off the case. A a stipulation, whichever one he chose, was that he was not allowed to talk to or inform anybody on the force about what he knew about the investigation, and that included the new chief. Not able to discuss it, no details, none of his own speculations, nothing. That's weird. Yeah, they were like, rip it, you know, rip it like a Band-Aid and get the fuck out of this office. Hmm, that's interesting. So he has a personal connection with the families because he's been supporting them. He knows where he's getting his resources from. He knows who he's talking to, uh, which questions he's asked, what his notes say. He has to take all of that with him. He uh, Any of his notes, everything, he's he's done. So he was he was a beloved leader. He had been voted into his position thanks to his years of hard work, uh, his morality, and, and his leadership role within the force. People liked him. He did, he did really well at his job. Boom, you're off the case. New chief comes in. His name is James Burke. And this man has a heckin' history. He did not have a lot of fans on the force. And it left not just confusion, but general unrest amongst the officers with the sudden change in leadership. Um, why was this happening? What's going on? Everyone there knew about Burke's ties to the DA, Thomas Spoda. And suddenly Burke starts pulling the plug on things. He starts reeling back resources. He starts talking poorly about the girls and what they were doing for work. So who is James Burke and what is this guy doing here? Not exactly squeaky clean, is he? No, 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 he is not. Um, He's squeaky. In 1979, Burke and Spoda met for the first time during the murder case of a young boy who was found brutally murdered behind a school. Spoda was really at the start of his career. He was just a prosecutor at the time, considered to be young, up and coming in the area. And Burke was actually just a kid. He was just, I think he was 14 at the time. So Burke and a few of his friends testified against four other teenage boys, older boys, who were being prosecuted for the murder of 13-year-old John Pius. This poor kid, trigger warning, John Pius was 13 And essentially what they think happened is he saw something he shouldn't have. Some teenagers took it into their own hands and unfortunately filled this boy's mouth with rocks and beat him. And he did suffocate. Oof. Yeah, behind the school. Just, I, you know, a nice kid. People loved him. 1979, it was a small community. It was, it hit the community really, really hard. So when Burke and his friends stepped in, and testified, it kind of, you know, put them on a pedestal for a little bit. Uh, they were able to help bring justice for for a very wronged community. And sure. Spoda has this reputation for always finding the perfect eyewitness who is also willing to testify and win his cases. Interesting. Hmm. He became known for that. Lucky. Uh, yeah. He... 
very lucky. <clears throat> so now that Spoda had Burke, you know, near him, uh, he kind of took a liking to him, like took him under his wing, never really let him go after that. Spoda became the DA for Suffolk County, which is where we're at. Uh, that's the county where all the girls were found, too. Burke joined the police force. He rose in the ranks rather quickly, kind of almost unusually quickly, as was attested to by fellow co-workers, most of whom came into the department with some kind of military training or some type of relevant higher education a college degree that would be relevant to being a police officer. They're all qualified for their specific roles, but Burke had nothing but his connections. He didn't have any proper training. He didn't, you know, he went through police school, but he didn't have any higher education that would merit him climbing the ladder the way he did. Hmm. He was known for having an explosive temper and unprofessional moments, which included in 1990 when he engaged in sexual activities with a female sex worker in his police cruiser, allowing her the opportunity to take his sidearm, loaded sidearm. She walked with it. After an investigation by internal affairs, he was allowed to not just keep his job, but keep his job with no punishments. Wow. No fines, no times off, no switching departments. I mean, it's not something, it's something um, that we've heard of before, but they usually at least switch departments or get desk duty for a while. Right, nope, they didn't even try was... to hide that one at all. No. Not at all. He just, he was out back on the street being a beat cop. There were rumors that his relationship with the DA is the only reason that he got off like this. Burke was aggressive with what was described as risky tactics for catching street criminals. He didn't go by the book and put himself and his coworkers in danger quite often. Being as he himself was essentially a street crim criminal, I don't know how I feel about any of this. It seems like they might want to go back and review some of his prior cases. Well, do they, they know he was a street criminal? I mean, I called him a street criminal, allegedly, um, <laughs> because that's how he acted. That's how he behaved. Hmm. He behaved like... Um, like a power-tripping asshole <laughs> with a gun. Got it. Yeah, with a gun and a name behind him. And th that's about it. That's what he'll be remembered for. He will also be remembered for having turned his office into a makeshift bar. So once he was promoted to the uh, chief of detectives, <laughs> he turned his office into a makeshift bar that was open for drinks to employees, like, not even after hours. Just the sun starts setting and it's like, go hang out in his office. Oh, hell yeah. That's not a hell yeah, man. These guys have <laughs> loaded weapons. <laughs> he used the department's resources to stalk his girlfriends and their exes, including setting up surveillance on them. So he has other people in his department doing his dirty work for him. All this is listed in legal documents, but I will go ahead and say one more time, allegedly. Yikes. So attorney John Ray was over here asking the real questions in an interview with 48 Hours and pointed out the obvious. He says, the man who pe 
patronized sex workers is charged with the investigation of murdered sex workers. And not just that, but he was he was put into this position of power after a very well-qualified man was already in that position. There was no reason for this change in power. Doesn't end here, though. So when I said that Burke started pulling the plug on this investigation, I'm talking kicking the FBI out of his territory. He lost all that added manpower, the technology that they had offered into the investigation, and he starts pulling people back and, and giving them new assignments. They're no longer working this case of the Long Island serial killer. He turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to anyone with information about the case. I mean, what was he doing? <laughs> so in 2011, Burke is shifted up the ranks and takes over. By December of 2012, roughly a year and a half later, a petty thief breaks into his SUV and steals a duffel bag. It's his work SUV. Guess what was in the bag? What's in the bag, Eric? Oh, what's in the bag? What's in the bag, Eric? Sex toys, porn, his gun belt, his gun, and ammo. Uh-oh. In one bag in his work truck. That's his work gun, his work belt, and ammo from work. I wonder if it was work porn or work toys, but this man, either way, is out of control. Business or pleasure? <laughs> Business into what? <laughs> Oh, my Lord. Uh, first of all, okay, we get it. Like, people be people and out here. They do their thing. You know, you, you're allowed to have all of those items. But it's kind of like going into a hardware store and buying duct tape and rope and a shovel right? <laughs> all at the same time. What kind of party are you having? I know, and that's all you buy? Come on now. <laughs> some gloves. Throw some gloves in there. Some bleach for good measure. Second of all... Who keeps a duffel bag like that? You know, basically their work uniform and all of that in, in their freaking work car. Like, what even is that? Eh, sometimes you're just throwing stuff in bags, you know? I Just, like, easier to carry? Oh, yeah. It was his purse, His man purse. Right. <laughs> so at least it wasn't in his, uh, like, a briefcase. It was like a going to the gym duffel bag. I don't know. A briefcase might have seemed a little bit more put together maybe i feel like a duffel bag he should have had like a stack of bills in there hmm. some drugs at least he didn't have drugs he's right. got that going for him we thought you'd be carrying drugs in here you're carrying adult toys i know right they're like uh, pulling stuff out of it and they're like okay where's the cocaine right <laughs> but really but where is it um he's like oh that's in my office <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's speculation. Allegedly. No, it's not even alleged. That's just We're alleging. a joke. <laughs> We're alleging. Okay, so Burke assigns everyone to find the kid who stole his bag. He pulls him off the case. They're back at their desk, and now he's like, go find this kid. Like, somebody broke into my truck and took some very important items, and they're like, what are we looking for, sir? And he's like, a bag. Oh, crap. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Just Never mind. Find him. <laughs> Would you like a drink? Right. <laughs> anyway, with everybody out there, they found him pretty quick. It's this kid in his 20s. You know, to me, that's still a kid. They restrain him in an interrogation room to the floor. They take the chair out. They took the table out. And they used literal handcuffs and chains to the floor. 
I'm assuming they turned the cameras off at this point because Burke lost his shit on this kid. He beat the ever-loving pulp out of him and then threatened to give him a hot shot, which for those of you that don't know is laced heroin. It's fatal. This kid was just a crook, a common criminal. He would go break into cars. He would steal enough to pay for his habit, which I believe at the time, you know, his drug of choice was heroin. Regardless, what the fuck? It's pretty intense. Yeah. You're sitting there and um, you can look up interviews with this poor kid. He was like, every time I asked for my lawyer, they would just hit me again. Just over and over and over and over. And they did take pictures of him after the beating. He's almost unrecognizable. Like, they sent him to the hospital. For what? (laughs) Like, I want to know what that conversation sounded like. Because that's not just, you stole my bag, my secret treasures. That's that's a personal vendetta. So it kind of makes you wonder, if he's capable of that in the station... What if somebody crossed him on the street? Right. Him being Burke. (laughs) Whatever. There was a whole investigation into this one. So the FBI stepped in after Spoda, D.A. Spoda, tried to talk his way out of it. He tried to cover for Burke. He tried to explain what had happened. He tried to shove it under the rug like he had done so many times. But Burke, thank goodness, ends up going to prison for assault and obstruction of justice. He gets sentenced to 46 months, half of which was served under house arrest. So he got 46 months for threatening to murder this kid, abusing his position of power over a freaking bag, which is still an absurd bag to have. And that's what he gets in trouble for. And then he gets to go home and serve it at home. Like, what is happening? And he also took the almighty Thomas Spoda down with him, who was sentenced to five years for witness tampering, obstruction of justice, and conspiracy. This man was so many decades into his career, and this is the only time he got in trouble. And then while he was in, in prison, he said, I'm afraid that I'm going to die in here and this is going to be my legacy. I'm paraphrasing because I'm just trying to remember. I didn't actually write that down. Yeah, you moron. Of course it's going to be your only legacy. Nobody else is going to know your name for any other reason. Yeah, terrible. You sound you sound really convinced. I'm all lit over here. Like, you need some of my honey tea. It's all the sugar in that honey. I saw a video the other day of a bear that shredded through. They had some honeybees in their cabin's porch, like under the wood slats on the porch. And this black bear comes up and they try to bulk up right now, this part of the season, so that they can go into hibernation through the winter. (laughs) It shredded through this guy's porch and just starts ripping these hunks of the hive out so it can get to the honeycomb. And it starts chewing through this honeycomb and just kind of swatting these bees off of its face like it wasn't no thing. Oh, yeah, they can handle bees. That was wild. Anyway, so me with honey, that's how I related that to this. In the meantime, back in the story, everyone seemed to have forgotten about the girls at this point. And this is all my opinion. It's based off of some 
news stories, alleged events, and various reports on those alleged events. Okay, guys? This is my opinion. It makes me wonder, why was Burke so intent on getting the spotlight off the girls in the first place? Did Spoda have anything to do with this? Why was he so quick to cover for Burke and sacrifice his whole career for this? Why did he put Burke in power in the first place, right? So did Spoda have anything to do with it? Where I'm sitting, which is years in the future, thousands of miles away, it looks like a corrupt cop was put into a position of power by a corrupt DA to allegedly derail an investigation into girls going missing in and near a well-to-do neighborhood that had suspicious neighbors hiring sex workers in the dead of night who then run, possibly drugged and screaming, they are trying to kill me. Not he, they. And you have Dr. Hackett, Dr. Peter Hackett over here, claiming to run a wayward girls' home. Yeah, it's all sounding real suspicious. Two days after she goes missing, her stuff turns up scattered in a very hard-to-reach marsh behind Hackett's home. He's calling her mother to say that he ran into Shannon. I was near Shannon. To me, that's like, oh, there's a reason my fingerprints are on the doorknob. Right, getting ahead of it. Yeah, and then he denies it later, but he put it into an official police report where they poo-poo it as if it's not important. But her stuff is all over his backyard, essentially. And that he's the neighbor of the man who hired her. It just, it seems like too much, too many coincidences, too many things that are related. And I'm not the only one who thinks that, honestly. Um, I've seen at least one other article that might be headed that direction. But let's get to the man of the hour. The man who thought he had gotten away. Who? The absolutely enormous bulk of sentient flesh, Rex Hewerman. Rex was an architect. Architect something. I can't remember specifically what he called himself. He got into the architectural industry, uh, falling almost by accident into his role as a facilitator with the city of Manhattan. He did an interview with the YouTube channel. I think it's pronounced Le Interview. I don't know. It was kind of hard to watch. He talked about getting into the architectural industry in the 80s. Uh, he was the new guy at this company, and they threw him this crap assignment reading this massive book about old like zoning laws and building codes and stuff. And they're like, read this whole thing because we've got this weird assignment. He reads the whole thing and realizes there's this whole hidden treasure to be made. Like nobody else is working with old building laws and coding, which is why he got the shit stick <laughs> to be the one to read it. And he's like, okay, now that I know all of this, I can apply this and have this whole niche group that nobody else is covering. So much of Manhattan isn't new build. It's like new and old. And now he had the knowledge to renovate the old. So he founds his own business in 1994. Hooray! But no, 
because they found out that the six foot three inch tall behemoth of verbal meat had purchased burner phones to hire sex workers. He worked where many of the girls had last been seen. He was traced to burner phones that matched final calls to some of the girls, and they found his wife's DNA in some female hair that was trapped in the burlap that the girls had been found in. Oh, boy. The burner phones and some of the missing girls' cell phones could all be traced to his Manhattan office. His wife's hair was on the burlap sacks, and just so we don't go down that slippery slope, when all the girls went missing, his wife and his two children were out of town. Because, yeah, this man had a stepson from his wife's previous marriage and a daughter, which is just wild to me. That is wild. They're like our age. That's crazy. Yeah. I don't get that. When you have somebody that kills young people that are the same age as their own kin. Yeah, there's something real disturbing about that. Very disturbing about that. And the fact that the family didn't really have any clue. But you can't tell me they didn't have a clue. Um, We'll get into this here. So he's described by some neighbors as being much of a normal family man. Others felt that he was maybe not very diligent with his property. They lived in the same Long Island neighborhood for decades. And a lot of the neighbors said that he really was not a friendly guy. You know, come Halloween, the the kids would not go up and ring his doorbell. They felt that maybe his property was a little dilapidated compared to some of the other neighbors in the neighborhood and how they upkept their own houses. Many of his co-workers and professional acquaintances described him more as cold and at times came off as somewhat creepy. Just his mannerisms, the way he said things when he said things, you know, those, you know what I mean, right? Right, yeah. Uh, Some of them described his attitude as having a certain, like, swagger is what they used to describe it, as if he felt like he was the smartest man in the room. Him reading that book initially kind of, he felt it put him on another level and that his clients or people he worked with needed him more than he needed them. One woman who worked in the same networking group, I think she was an interior designer, claims that Rex got her phone number from that networking group and then left her a creepy voicemail, called her continuously, even though they'd never worked a job together, they really didn't even cross paths, and I think I remember reading, she said the only reason it was creepy is because it was from him. Otherwise, it was relatively normal sounding. Uh, They also discovered that he owed over $400,000 in unpaid taxes for his company. So Rex's schoolmates remember him as being quiet, Um, Some of them described him as nerdy or a loner. One woman recalled a schoolgirl crush that Rex had on her. He used to leave her anonymous love notes in her locker. She finally caught him sneaking one of the notes into her locker, which is why she knew they were from him. he, He never signed any of them. She said they were sweet, but she did tell him that she wasn't interested so she, I, she said she couldn't remember if she told him she already had a boyfriend or she wasn't interested. Regardless, you know, she brushed him off. 
And it seems like all his life, Rex had been a bit of a recluse, kind of living in his head, keeping to himself. When he was given any sort of leverage, any type of power, just a hint of it, he would use fear to dominate the room. He used macho tactics to kind of play the alpha role. Shopping for small and vulnerable young women online must have been an absolute dream for him. He he could tell them that he wanted their services. And yeah, they it sounds would like uh, Love Lost was uh, his villain arc. Yeah, it truly does line up with the storyline of a villain. You know, he's made fun of in school. Maybe he doesn't care for himself. That translates into his older adult years. Yeah, definitely. You know, <laughs> doesn't. Yeah. And he, just that off-putting mannerism that you can't quite put your finger on. But it's there. Your instinct is picking up on on something is not right. And you can kind of see that in his interview with the guy from the interview on YouTube. You can look it up. Uh, you can watch it yourself. The interviewer is just kind of nervously laughing at like really inappropriate times throughout the interview. And Rex just kind of has this like smug, almost like gleeful little smirk on his face every time it happens, like recognizing that this man understands who has the power in that room. It's very interesting to watch. Hmm. I'm not a psychologist. I also read other comments, so I'm somewhat paraphrasing off of other people's observations because they fit. I see. Apropos. So Rex goes under investigation for the Long Island killings because a witness spotted a Chevy Avalanche driving away during Amber Costello's disappearance. Now that Chevy Avalanche, I'm assuming they did a search for his area. And realized, you know, he must have been on a list of however many people. Um, And they narrow it down by tracing her phone to an area near his office in Manhattan and his home in Massapequa. And they put two and two together. Now, that's just what I'm figuring happened because they all they said is that a witness spotted a Chevy Avalanche. And that's why he went under investigation. Hmm. There's a lot of them out there. Come on now. Yes, there is. So I, I'm just thinking that they, they probably narrowed it down and cross-checked lists and his name popped up on all of them. Definitely. On July 13th, they finally arrested him. July 13th of 2023. They arrested him this summer. They served over 200 search warrants in this process. They uncovered what they described as sadistic material on his laptop including recent searches for child pornography, photos of the victims, and photos of their families, and then searches asking questions about why the Long Island serial killer hadn't been traced through the phone calls and hadn't been discovered yet. They confirmed DNA evidence matches with certain material left on the victims using a discarded pizza box from his home to help secure some of those search warrants. They traced some of the calls to Melissa Bartholomew's 15-year-old sister, the ones where that killer was harassing and threatening her, and then explaining her sister's murder to her. They traced them back to Rex Hewerman as well. Oh, Rex. 
So he staunchly denies all of these allegations against him. And although it seems like the police actually did the legwork this time by stacking a pretty solid-sounding case against him, August 22nd of this year, freaking James Burke shows up again. This idiot was busted at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Park in Farmingville. It's known to the locals as Pickle Park, right? For soliciting oral sex with an undercover male park ranger. Burke and Hewerman are the same age, grew up in similar areas. Burke does some super shady shit around this whole investigation. And now we've got some other frequenters of Pickle Park coming forward saying, yeah, we cross paths with Hewerman too. And there's no way these two guys didn't know each other. How's that? Because the witnesses cross paths with both of them. And I guess the way that they cross paths, it's kind of like a Cheeseman Park. I see. You know, there's that one bathroom and we all know it. (laughs) We all know what it's used for. It's our pickle park. You got some of us. You got some regulars going up there. Right. And these these people who have not been identified yet are saying, hey, there's no way they didn't cross paths. There's no way they didn't know about each other. Okay. Okay. So Burke is out because he served his sentence, air quotes. He's he's out from that. Walking around Pickle Park soliciting sex. And Hewerman supposedly was also known for frequenting that area. I just, I mean, we're still stacking these cards of... Is Hewerman the only one that was involved? So have they connected Burke at all? Um, Not to this point. I don't know if there's any kind of a side investigation going on or if it's just going to be left at Hewerman. But for all the legwork that went into getting 200 search warrants and secure an arrest on somebody like him for this, I I don't know what they're doing. I mean, August 22nd, that's, what, a month and a week after Hewerman's arrested. Burke now gets arrested for soliciting sex in a park. Um, these these people that are coming forward and saying that, you know, they've run into both of them at Pickle Park before are going to the Gilbert family lawyer to try to get some traction with them. So I have no idea what's going on in the the investigation, what's going on behind the scenes. I was just doing this research and started seeing some things where it would just make sense. Right. Connecting the dots there. Yeah. But I, you know, am here in Denver reading through this for the first time. I, you know, I haven't spent years. I don't have my hands on the evidence. I'm not a trained professional. All I know is, is that I have an opinion. That's what I think. I would love to hear what you all think. Um, I mean, it's an open case. We can, we can kind of throw some stuff around here. He's still, you know, got the preserved right to a fair trial. I'm not part of any legal team. I don't get to make a judgment on him. I can sit here and say what I think. That's what I think. I think there was more people involved. All right. What do you think? Sounds like it. You never know. It's probably one of those creepy neighborhoods where they dress up in robes and do, do their thing. Like black robes? Yeah, oh yeah. 
cloak and dagger secret society type stuff i i wonder if somebody has like a uh statue of like baphomet oh they do something like that you know oh they do i because personally i feel like the whole shannon gilbert situation didn't look exactly like the others because it got slightly bungled and to have her driver just walk away like well i tried (laughs) yeah that's also suspicious and this what this guy is just you can hear uh I guess in the the recording, you can hear him in the recording with the 911 phone call telling her, screaming at her to get out of his house. But then she starts screaming, help me. And what really gets me is that she specifically used and never strayed from it every time said, they, they're trying to kill me. They're coming after me. Right. I mean, lots of drugs can make you see a lot of different things. And she was clearly subdued somehow but still coherent enough to know to run to a neighbor's house and ask for help still coherent enough to call 911 i don't know i don't know i could just sit here and talk in circles lots of unanswered questions yeah really truly i mean i would love to hear what you guys think and i am so excited to see what happens in this upcoming trial rex hurman cried like a baby when he found out he was getting charged by with this. They better have some good evidence. Sounds like they do. If That's they're good. already talking about some of the evidence that they have. <laughs> we'll have to keep our eyes on this one. Yeah. So that was the case, in Lauren's opinion, on the alleged Long Island serial killer. Dun dun. Dun dun. That's all I have. That's all I got for you. That was a wild one. Yeah. Lots of cra- lots of characters. Lots of characters. Well, you can uh give us your opinion on Apartment 309 podcast. We're just on Instagram. I don't tweet. I don't TikTok. <laughs> it's X now. Oh, what? They changed the name from of Twitter. Oh, I don't What do you call it then? X. When you tweet something, you X it? I think people just still call it tweet. You can't exit. I don't know. That's like one of those things where, uh, like we used to save things on floppy disks, and now the save button is a floppy disk, but people don't, like younger generations don't know what a floppy disk is, so they just know that as the save icon, but it seems like an unreasonable thing to have. Yeah, they don't know. It's just a, it's a floppy disk. It's just a floppy that You didn't know. You just like shove that. Yeah. Anyway, so I wonder if... It's going to stay, like, it's called X, but you tweet, and they're like, but why? <laughs> why Why do you call it a tweet? Right. Yeah. It'll take a while for it to get there. Or like, shoot, even a phone icon? Why it wouldn't look like a cell phone? Yeah, no one knows. These The younger generation's not going to know. Yeah, yeah. I, I always find it adorable um, watching younger generations. It makes me feel really old because I feel the same way about, like, older generations things like if you gave me a telephone from 19 you know 24 i wouldn't know how to work it but (laughs) watching uh younger generations try to work uh equipment that we grew up with and i'm like dear god i'm not that old (laughs) but technology has progressed that quickly so we get to watch it happen in real time just things get phased out that quickly that they're irrelevant they're you know a paperweight (laughs) 
it's, it's interesting great. to watch that's for sure yeah it's uh it's fun it's great anyway so i think i was telling you guys you can follow us on instagram apartment 309 podcast give your opinion there um i try to post videos that sometimes aren't even related to uh what we're talking about on the podcast because i saw something funny <laughs> it made me laugh so i thought i'd make you laugh it's anyway. for the gram <laughs> for the gram our apart our email is apartment 309 podcast as well at gmail.com you can send your opinion there i'd be happy to read it at the end of the day thank you all so much for joining us tonight in apartment 309 it really would be so helpful if you guys were able to rate leave a review uh, tell your friends share our podcast with people around you we are going to start working on trying to reach more people, and you guys are are most of that. You're the whole reason we're sitting here right now. If I just had to talk to this guy all the time, I'd lose my mind, which is why we're here. Please help. Yeah, and tell <laughs> us if you have any stories you want us to talk about and cover. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we did we did the uh, the Demon House. The Demon House. Give us another one. If you have something that happened locally... I would love if you gave me some links. I will look that shit up and I will tell Eric about it. I love finding out new things. Um, send it to apartment309podcast at gmail.com or you can send us a letter. P.O. Box 631728, Highlands Ranch, Colorado 80163. And I hope you join myself, Lauren. And Eric. Next time. In apartment, in apartment 309. 309.